This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the throne of grace to seek guidance and direction in our study this morning. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come uh, to you, that you have revealed your word to us, and in this church age you have given us the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit to help us to understand your word and to see how it applies to our life. And Father, as we study your word now, as we submit ourselves to your instruction, that we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us what you have revealed in your word, that we might come to a greater understanding of the riches that we have in Christ, all that has been given to us and provided for us, that we might learn to walk in a manner that glorifies you, that we may learn to apply these mandates that the Apostle Paul gives, these commands, and see them fulfilled in our life, that we might grow to maturity, that Jesus Christ may be displayed in our life, and that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We've been studying Colossians now for a little over a year, and we've come to the, the main focal point, the main emphasis, the main reason that Paul is writing this epistle to this church in Colossae. He's writing to them because they've got a basic problem. And that basic problem is, isn't any different from the basic problem that manifests itself for most Christians in the early 21st century and truly for most Christians throughout the uh, centuries. And that is the problem of learning how to, how to fulfill the commandments in the scripture so that we can experience that life that Jesus promised. Jesus said in John 10 that I did not come like, the, like a thief to steal and destroy, but I came to give life, number one, and to give life abundantly. Those are two distinct things. The giving of life there is related to what we normally refer to as salvation, but more specifically to justification or regeneration, when a person moves from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, when they move from being unrighteous before God to having a state of righteousness because of of the declaration of their justification by faith alone in Christ alone. But that is only when we move from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. But unfortunately and sadly, there are way too many Christians who are basically spiritual zombies. They are the walking dead 
They have life, but they're not living it. They, they don't experience the abundant life that Jesus promised because they are living just like they did before they were saved. They don't understand what was given to them, provided for them, uh, supplied to them at that instant of salvation, giving them uh, true freedom from the tyranny, from the dominion, from the mastery of the sin nature. And they continue to live under the control of the sin nature, under the dominion of the sin nature, without ever experiencing the kind of richful, joyful, abundant life that Jesus promised. And so a lot of the New Testament and the passages addressed to living the spiritual life are passages that are addressed to believers so that we can understand what we have in Christ so that we can learn how to apply it in terms of our day-to-day life. And all of this, every time Paul gets into this, as we have seen, he ends up going back to the, the transactions that occurred first at the cross and second when you and I first believed Jesus died on the cross. There was a spiritual event that occurred there that is described in Scripture as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, more correctly translated, a baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. And it is in that, the realities that took place in that transaction that we are set free from the tyranny, from the dominion, from the control of the sin nature. But for most people, that doesn't seem to be much of a reality. And again and again, Paul says the same thing in different words as to how to recognize that, and it's basically a reality check. We have to understand the reality of what happened. It's not theological fiction. Some people have used that term. It's not just uh, sort of a confidence in confidence. It's not just a mental attitude shift. It is recognition of a reality that shifted, that changed at that instant that you and I trusted in Christ as Savior. The problem is because a lot of Christians think that they should be experiencing uh, joy and happiness and the abundant life that Jesus promised, and it's not really theirs, that they have somehow managed to rationalize certain other uh, self-help techniques, let's say, for lack of a better term, and baptize those, so to speak, with Christianity. And they bring that in, bring this foreign material into Christianity, try to redefine it and say this is really the same thing that the Bible says when in fact it's not. That same thing was going on in the ancient world. That's what is usually referred to by uh, the scholars of uh, Colossians as the Colossian heresy. It was a form of teaching that had influence from Greek philosophy, uh, early ideas that later became known as Gnosticism, uh, certain ideas of uh, asceticism in from from some fringe uh, Jewish groups that may have been influenced by those who were uh, uh, down in Qumran. Uh, but it was the idea that Jesus really isn't enough. You also have to do additional things. You have to observe certain feast days. You have to be circumcised physically, men do. Uh, you have to have these other things as part of your life. You have to have seek additional revelation uh, from angels. This is mentioned in verse, verse 18. And that um, 
as a result of this, and only as a result of this, can you then fully experience what uh, the Bible is talking about as abundant life. In other words, it's a the idea that you didn't get everything at the cross, you needed to get something afterwards, and there needed to be additional revelation, additional information, additional insight. That manifests itself down through the ages in different ways in the church. There's medieval mysticism and monasticism, asceticism that uh, began around the 4th century A.D. and developed in different ways throughout the period we know as the Middle Ages. It manifested itself later on in the history of Christianity in various extreme forms of what was known as pietism, uh, Quakerism, Shakerism, uh, and then in the uh, modern holiness Pentecostal or charismatic Pentecostal uh, movements. These were all various ways to say that there's something that we didn't get at the cross and we need to add to it. And the way that Paul addresses this in verse 19 of Colossians 2, as we have seen, is that the basic problem was that they didn't hold fast to the head. The head is Christ. And we have to hold fast to the head because only the head is sufficient, which is the theme of Colossians, that Jesus Christ is all-sufficient. And when we let go of that absolute dependence upon Christ as the head, then we're looking to something other than the head to supply nourishment and to supply strength and spirituality to the body. So we looked at this last time that the problem basically was that they were seeking help for life's problems apart from Christ. Today we do that through various forms of uh, psychology, various forms of self-help techniques. Uh, we're very popular to go to megachurches where the messages are nothing more than uh, uh, motivational self-help techniques that have been given a very uh, flimsy veneer of uh, biblical uh, illusions in order to convince people that somehow they are Christian. What happens when we go through this spiritual decapitation where we cut ourselves off from Christ as the head is that that we are rejecting the complete and full authority of Christ. We cut ourselves off from the nourishment that comes only from Christ, from spiritual growth that comes only from Christ, from the strength of Christ. And for, for example, Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then this is going to impact uh, our rewards and blessing in eternity. It doesn't change our destiny, but it changes the qualitative aspects of that destiny. It also impacts, of course, the first four points impact the quality of our spiritual life today. The solution from Paul is that, first of all, we have to understand our position in Christ. This isn't taught a lot today because it is too abstract. It's too, oh, people have to think too much. It was, it was interesting. I had lunch yesterday with a, uh, uh, a man who is, uh, came down from Moody Bible Institute to teach at a church here in, uh, in Houston this weekend. And I've known him through his writings. We have many, many mutual friends. Uh, we overlapped in seminary by a couple of years. And he's going to a large church today. And he t- spoke last night and today. And he was speaking last night on Daniel 70 weeks and Daniel 9. 
And the pastor of the church said, oh, that's, that, that, that's, that's just way too difficult for people. They just can't possibly understand that. You're just going to confuse everybody. It'll be too difficult. And uh, he said, no, 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 I can, I can, I can do this in a way where it won't, it won't be too difficult. And, and he can. But unfortunately, that attitude of that pastor is too typical today is that, that we, we, all we have is infants. All we're ever going to feed them is spiritual pablum because if we ever try to thicken it up a little bit and give them real nourishment, they're just going to go someplace else. So let's just keep everybody in the nursery. And as uh, uh, Earl Rodmacher former president of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, commented at a conference I attended over 20 years ago, the biggest nursery in the world is the evangelical church. To that I add the observation, yes, and the nursery workers have no idea how to get the babies out of diapers or to help them grow up, and they just perpetuate the nursery. But that is not my uh, philosophy of ministry. We have to get into the Word. This is the philosophy of the Apostle Paul. We have to under, understand our position in Christ. There was, there's a man, some of you may have read him, named Miles Stanford. Miles went to be with the Lord uh, around 12 or 13 years ago. He was a man who was, had graduated Dallas, Dallas Seminary, wrote a number of papers, I think, called the Green Letters that were about the spiritual life. He... Uh, Loved Lewis Berry Chafer in terms of Dr. Chafer, Dr. Chafer's view of dispensations in the kingdom. And he loved that. He wrote a lot about that. But, but he really didn't agree with Dr. Chafer's view on the spiritual life. And, uh, because his view was that Dr. Chafer did not emphasize enough the identification truths, what he, what Miles called identification truths. The reason I bring that up is because I've gotten in some rather heated discussions with people who were fans of Miles and who really didn't understand what Miles taught. I do. I had many conversations with him over the years. In fact, I talked to him about a month before he died about a lot of these uh, different things. Um, he called this identification truths, and the biggest problem I tried to communicate to him is he created an either-or, a false dichotomy. It's either Chafer, what Chafer said, which is the view uh, that we teach here on the spiritual life. For those of you who don't know, Lewis Berry Chafer was the uh, was the uh, uh, was mentored by C.I. Schofield, who edited the C.I. Schofield uh, the Schofield Reference Bible, and Chafer was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, but Miles said this was identification truth. It was either or. It's not. It is both and. We have to understand our identification with Christ, but when we fail to apply that, we're out of fellowship, and we have to understand how to get back in fellowship through uh, the utilization of 1 John 1.9. They are both true. It's not uh, one or the other. Uh, the solution, according to Paul, is to live in light of the reality of what we have in Christ. That's our new identity. And we have been identified with Christ in a way where we are united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, which is what, the, what Paul also describes as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have to develop a mental attitude, a mindset, a focus, a revision of the way in which we think about ourselves in life based on this new reality of who we are in Christ, and that involves actively putting to death uh, sin in our life, Colossians 3.5, and putting off these sins, Colossians 3.8. 
Now, there have been various misconceptions I pointed out last time and distortions. Some of you come from different backgrounds, so you've heard some of these. One is the idea that spiritual growth is inevitable if you're truly saved. That's the reformed or lordship position. The other, another position is that there's a one-time decision, uh, which is indicated uh, by a second event of dedication. If you've had this, you walk the aisle, you dedicate your life to Christ, it's a one-shot decision, elevates you to a level of, uh, a sec- second level of, of the higher life or uh, higher grace or something of that nature. Another false way of approaching Scripture is that you just do what the Bible says to do. That's a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps form of spirituality. How do you distinguish whether you're doing it in the flesh, the strength of the sin nature, or by walking by the Spirit? Uh, another uh Way is the mystical asceticism way, and that is that somehow the Holy Spirit communicates directly through me as to what I should do, and this often cuts itself off from the authority of Scripture in one degree or another. And then another form of that emphasizes the idea that you need to go out and crucify yourself daily. So we need to understand what that really means, because that's just another way of talking about what Paul is saying in this section of Colossians 2. And once again, I want to go over this this general structure. I don't want to lose you in the details. We have to have this this sort of a, a flyover orientation to understand the flow or the structure of what Paul says here in Colossians 2. He gets into the main focus, the main body of this, uh, back in Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse beginning in about verse 4. And as he focuses in on the emphasis of what we have received in Christ at the instant of salvation, uh, first introduced in verse 6 of chapter 2, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, that is on the basis of faith. And then he says, uh, he introduces this topic in 2.11 and 12, that in him, that is in Christ, you are also circumcised. That's spiritual circumcision. I've shortened it, abridged it a little bit to get everything on the chart here. And that was done by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Now, I put that Greek word in red there because I want you to notice that when we come to the end of this long section, in chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, Paul will conclude by making the statement that because you have put on the new man. There he uses the Greek word enduo. It's ekduo, putting off the body of sins in verse 11 and 12. And it's enduo, putting on the new man in verse 11, 10 and, uh, 3, 10, and 11. And so by looking at this, we see the, these are opposites. What happened at Christ at salvation is positionally we put off our old position. It's removed, like taking off an old suit. It's no longer there. And what happens is as we took that off, we put on something else that is called the new man. But that's a positional reality, and in between there is an experiential reality that we are to uh, position, I mean experientially put off the uh, sins of the flesh. Now, in the middle of that, Paul develops this argument by setting down two basic premises. I've, outlined, I've emphasized those in, in blue. Each of these begins with a, an if clause, but it's a, an if and it's true. It's a statement of reality. 
And so he lays down the first premise in verse 20, therefore, if you died with Christ. And then the second is, if then you were raised with Christ. Now, this term phraseology, as I've pointed out, dying with Christ and being raised with Christ is what Paul uses in Romans 6, as we'll see in a minute, uh, in relation to describing what happens in what is called this baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. We put off the body of the sins of the flesh in the identification with Christ in his death. So that's the connection. You put off the body of the sins of the flesh, Colossians 2.11. That is dying with Christ. So he's developing out that idea. And uh, we become alive in Christ. That is equated to being raised with Christ. Now, it's interesting because this fits within a time when we're about to... Uh, Remember, on the basis of the calendar, the death of Christ on what a traditionally Good Friday. I don't think it was a Friday. I think it was on Thursday, but that's another matter. There's a lot of debate and issues about uh, timing, and that's not really that uh, that relevant. Um, but next week we cele- celebrate and remember the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. Now, the death of Christ is always tied in Scripture to our salvation, our justification, because it's at the cross that he, as the Lamb of God, took away the sins of the world. It is at the cross that he died for sin. It is at the cross that that sin penalty is paid. So why why didn't he just get down and walk away? After those three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when the uh, Golgotha outside of uh, Jerusalem was covered in darkness and God judged Jesus for our sins, poured out the sins of the human race upon him, and when Jesus uh, came to the conclusion of that time period, he said it is finished, meaning it's paid in full, using a Greek idiom indicating that it's over and done with, nothing more need to be added to it, it's a perfect tense in the Greek indicated completed action. If it was all done and over with, why didn't Jesus just say, okay, and just step down off the cross? Because salvation was done with. Justification, the basis for justification was accomplished. But that wasn't everything that was going to be accomplished in that whole transaction related to his death, burial, and resurrection. For he had to be buried, not just for fulfillment of prophecy, but because his resurrection from the dead is the picture in the New Testament of the new life that we have in Christ. It is a new life that, is, uh, that has experienced a complete and total break from that which was prior to the death. So at salvation, we're identified with his death, but that's not the end of it. We are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection because in that identification with his resurrection, as we'll see in Romans 6, that is where we have the foundation for the new life that we have in Christ. This is why we have the basis for the abundant life that Jesus gave, not just life eternal, but qualitative life. Too often we think that when Jesus came to give eternal life, that meant life that without end. But there are many who have, will have life without end. In fact, all, uh, all will have life without end. Some will have life without end in heaven. Some will have life without end in the lake of fire. 
Uh, it's not just life without end. It is a quality of life. And to experience that today means to learn the principles of, of the spiritual life. So this terminology that's used here, and now uh, we go back to that other slide, focuses on this event of the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, which is the foundation for understanding and appropriating and realizing in our day-to-day life all that God has provided for us. So laying down the foundation in terms of these two basic premises, therefore, if you died with Christ, and you did, if you trusted in him as your Savior, if then you were raised with Christ, and you were, if indeed you trusted in Christ as your Savior. Now, if that's true, then certain realities fall out from that. Therefore, Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, put to death your members. Wait a minute, I already died. Yeah, but that's positional. And that's, that has to do with your eternal position before God. But you still have this experiential problem with sin, so there's a commandment to put to death your members, which are on the earth. And then in verse Colossians 3, 8, he says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these things, using another Greek word that is a synonym for the two other Greek words I have on the on the um, on the screen. Those words all are part of this uh, clothing metaphor that are that's used many times in the New Testament related to the spiritual life, putting off sin, putting on the new man, uh, putting off sin, taking it off as if it were a garment experientially as well as positionally. And in Colossians 3.8, the command is that you, you yourselves, that he's po- almost pointing his finger verbally. He's saying, you, every one of you, put off, take off experientially all these, and then he lists his list of, of, of sins. And, and why? Verse 10 and 11, because you have put on the new man. It's a different verb tense, and he uses, switches a word here because he's emphasizing because this is something that already happened. It happened when you trusted Christ because that reality is true. That changes how you're to live today. So he said, because you put on the new man. And the new man is in a new position where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slavery-free, but Christ is all in all. Now, were they still Jewish? Yeah. But in Christ, that wasn't an issue. Were they still Gentile? Were they still Greek? Were they still male? Were they still female? Sure they were. But in Christ, that didn't, that wasn't uh, a factor in their personal relationship to God. That's what it means to be in baptism of the Spirit. We see that same terminology in Galatians 3:27 and 28, for Paul says, as many as you were baptized into Christ, that refers to something, a past action, have put on Christ. See, that is this uh, word in duo again. You put it on at the time that you trusted in Christ with that event called the baptism by the Holy Spirit. As a result of that, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that after you're saved that you're no longer ethnically Jewish or ethnically a Gentile. As I was talking with this friend yesterday, who's the head of the Jewish Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute, we were going through various mutual acquaintances and friends that we had, and one of his uh, close friends from the time he was in seminary was one of our professors, who uh, he said, it's really funny, he's was all, has always been very pro-Jewish, 
and very supportive of the Jewish community, and he would go to some uh, uh, very involved in various Jewish rituals uh, among those who were Messianic Jews in the uh, in seminary. And he, he said, you know, he's really funny. He doesn't ever want to be referred to as a Gentile because he's in Christ now. It's not an issue. But this friend of mine yesterday said, but I keep pointing out to him that Paul calls the Christians in Rome Gentiles. See, the reality is after you're saved, you're still a Gentile ethnically or you're a Jew ethnically. You're still a male uh, by gender, or you're a female by gender, you're still a slave or free, but in terms of that relation to God, that's not a factor under the Mosaic law it was. If you were a female, if you were a slave, if you were um, uh, a Gentile, you could not have access, inner fel- close fellowship with God in the temple. Those were limiting factors. These aren't limiting factors in Christ in terms of your personal relationship to Christ. So let's put this up in a chart that's familiar to many of you to try to take an abstract principle and make it uh, real. There is a ritual in the church that is designed to teach this. Sadly, when this ritual is observed, very few pastors really teach why people need to be baptized by means of water. As you know by now, having sat here through last week's message and this week's, the baptism by the Holy Spirit is somewhat abstract. It's hard for people to get their mental fingers around this, depending on a lot of other factors. But when you look at water baptism, believer's baptism, it is a concrete image to depict what I'm teaching. And in water baptism, you take a person and they're immersed in water, which is a picture of cleansing, And it's a picture of a break between what is after the immersion from what is before the immersion. The plunging into the water is a picture of identification with the death of Christ, which is our cleansing, justification, salvation. And coming out of the water is a depiction of our new life as a result of having been saved, justified, cleansed at the time we trusted in Christ as Savior. So that in that new state, after being cleansed, ritually observed by the, and depicted by the water, there is new life in Christ. That is a powerful message and a powerful picture, but it is so often reduced to just simply observance of, of, a, of a ritual. In this chart, what I've done is to describe on one side the eternal realities that we have in Christ. This is that positional truth as it's described sometimes or identification truth. On the right side of the chart are the temporal realities. This is what we experience on a day-to-day basis. The left side is what we have in Christ. And when we enter, when we trust Christ as Savior, we are entered into or identified with his death and we are placed in Christ by what is called the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is referring to in Colossians 3, 9 to 10 when he says, you have put off the old man and you have now put on the new man. It is a past tense reality. On the other side, we know that just because we have been saved and we're a new creature in Christ and all things are new, we know that we still sin. 
We still struggle with temptation. We still re- realize that, that in our experience, we don't have the abundant life. Something, something somehow isn't connecting. Well, it's because it wasn't a magic thing that you got baptized by the Spirit, and so uh, experientially you're different. The reality is you have to now learn what that means and all that it implies and now live on the basis of that. So on the right side, we, I depict the experiential reality where we are, when we are walking by, walking in the light, that's the basis of the white circle. When we're walking in the light, we're walking by the Spirit, we are being filled by the Spirit. And this is the arena that Paul is talking about when he says, but you are now to, because you have put off the old man, you need to put off certain sins. Because you have put on the new man, you need to put on certain characteristics. Now, that isn't done by bootstrap spirituality. It's done by, as he will say when he gets down to verse 16, by letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You have to know the word. It's not apart from knowledge, as I pointed out last time. And as I pointed out, I think it was on our Tuesday night class in Acts, the results of letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us, which it relates to singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs and being thankful to the Lord for all things and being learning how to be in right relationship, right authority structures with various uh, uh, members of the human race, uh, parents, wives, husbands, uh, when uh, employers, all of that's the result of letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you in Colossians 3, 16b, and down to the beginning of chapter 4. In Ephesians 5, the command is be filled by means of the Spirit, and the results from 5.17 down through the middle of chapter uh, 5, I mean chapter 6, is the same thing. So what, being filled by means of the Spirit and being filled by the word are two aspects of the same kind of action. It is the walking by the Spirit. He fills us with his word. It is that filling of his word and implementing it is letting the word of Christ richly dwell uh, within us. So we have this positional identification reality that is ours the instant we trust Christ as Savior, but we have to learn what it means and put it into practice. Colossians 3 8 emphasizes this when Paul says, but now you yourselves are to put off. That's what's in the uh, reddish box on the left, apotithemi, uh, which means you're to put off, take it off like, an, like dirty clothes and throw it away. And it, there's a list of sins. That's the application of the word to do that under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and the word of God. In verse 9 he says, don't lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. So there are positive things uh, that we're to do and negative things that we're to do because of this positional reality, verse 9. So as we come to the end last time of chapter 2 going into chapter 3, Paul says, therefore, his second premise, if you have died with Christ from the basic principles, or this is the first, uh, first principle, rather, uh, therefore, if you died with Christ, first class condition, that's the red one, uh, with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why do you subject yourselves to its regulations? Why are you still living as if you're a spiritually dead person? You're just the walking dead. You're like a spiritual zombie. You're not experiencing the life that God gave you. You're alive, but you're still acting and living as though you're dead. 
verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he gives a second principle. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The reason I put the red exclamation point there is that's an imperative. That's a command in the Greek. So you're to do something. If this is true, that you were raised with Christ, then you have to do something. You have to seek. You have to make a priority of seeking the things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's referring to the whole doctrine of the uh, ascension and session of Christ. And how many times is that actually taught today? Verse uh, Chapter 3, verse 2, we read, Set your mind on the things above. So again, it relates to a mental focus. We need to focus on the things above. Not that we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good, but we need to focus on the eternal truths as defined by God. And then he says, for, that is in the sense of, of because, why are we to do this? Because you died. And that happened the instant you trusted Christ as Savior. You died to the old life. It's a break. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, to understand this a little more, I want you to turn with me back over to Romans 6. We started here last time, and I wanted to go back over all of these connections, get it in your heads again, because this is not necessarily the easiest material to assimilate, but it is foundational and important. Romans 6 is where Paul really develops and unpacks for us this whole doctrine related to the baptism by the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about water baptism in Romans 6. He begins to say, uh, using a couple of rhetorical questions, what shall we then say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, in the previous section, uh, in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 down through 21, uh, Paul has been uh, explaining what we have now in Christ, that we are now alive in Christ, and that uh, uh, the death penalty has been removed. But unfortunately, there are too many people who are living as though they are, are still dead and they, because they are not understanding and appropriating the reality of what happens at salvation. And so they continue to sin, and they might even, uh, and in response to what he says at the end of chapter 5, where he said that uh, the law entered that the offense might abound by defining all the things that uh, indicate sin, uh, sin became more evident. That's what he's saying. Uh, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So somebody might say, oh, well, let's just go sin so we can get more grace. In verse 21, Paul said, so that if sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin leads to a death-like experience. Now, he's talking to believers here. He's not talking about spiritual death at this point. He's talking about the fact that as believers, you can live in what I've called carnal death or temporal death. You're, you're out of fellowship and you have a death-like life because you're not appropriating the abundant life that is Christ. You're living like an unbeliever. You're walking in darkness and not experiencing that life. So Paul is going to explain how you do it. And that's verse 3. Verse 3, he says, Do you not know? Implication. You should have been taught this. This should have been very clear to you in Christian Life 101 in the first three months you got saved. Do you not know that 
many of us were baptized, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, that's not water baptism. He's talking about this spiritual transaction that occurred at the instant of salvation. We're baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Now, I talked about this a little bit last time because in Colossians 2.20, it talks about, therefore, if we have died with Christ. This is what this is referring to, this death with Christ. Now, the word baptism is a Greek word which literally means to immerse, to wash, to dip, to plunge. talks about taking one object and immersing it into another object. But there was a figurative meaning to that. It is a literal reality, but there was a figurative significance to it. For example, in ancient, uh, in ancient Greek times, in the time of Athens and Sparta, 5th century B.C., a, a soldier who had completed boot camp and was ready to be inducted into uh, an active unit where he would be going to war would take his spear and he would plunge it, immerse it, baptize it into a bucket of pig's blood. What's going on here? It's a picture of identification with death, that he's now ready to go into war and to kill the enemy. And so his spear is identified with death through this identification with blood, which stands for death. So the picture is of identification. And so when we read this sentence, we can catch its significance if we say, do you not know that as many of us as were identified into Christ Jesus were identified into his death? We're uni- and later Paul's going to say we're united into the likeness of his death. There, there's a real transaction here. This isn't legal fiction. It's a real transaction, but it takes place in an unseen spiritual realm, not in a seen, felt, experiential realm. And then Paul says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism. That is, through that identification with him, we're buried with him into death. That Death to what? Spiritual death? No. Into a death to our former existence as an unregenerate uh, unbeliever. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father... See, that resurrection's mentioned there, and its significance. He's raised from the dead, so we should walk in newness of life. See, the resurrection isn't tied to justification here. That was what Paul talked about back in Romans 3 and 4. Resurrection here is tied to newness of life, a new quality of life. So the resurrection aspect of Christ's work during those days between the crucifixion and the resurrection Each element has different significance. What he did on the cross paid the penalty for sin and is the basis for our justification. His resurrection is the basis for our new life that is free from the dominion of the tyranny of the sin nature. So the significance of baptism is it's for identification. So we are buried with him. And this is a past tense through baptism into death. It occurred whenever it occurred at the moment that you believed Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But it didn't stop there. That's the beginning of something. There's a new birth we talk about, 
And a new birth means there should, it should be followed by new growth. That new baby needs to grow to adulthood and needs to be nourished. It needs to be fed spiritually so that it can grow, and it needs to learn how to walk like any infant, but to walk in the light and to walk by means uh, of the Holy Spirit. So now I'm going to go to another slide, but I didn't get the uh, animation taken off of this thing, so let's uh, see if it will all eventually show up. It's not showing up. Yeah. Okay. We have on the left side our identification truth. This all refers to that baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, but it's on that left side of the chart. It is a positional reality. It's a reality that uh, takes place in a non-seen, non-experiential realm. We don't feel it when it happens. It happens quicker than that. And all this is true. Just because you didn't feel it doesn't mean it's not true. God has now told you about it through Romans 6, and now you can understand how that transaction took place and that that is the basis for this new life in Christ. So Paul goes on in Romans 6, 5 to say, For if we have been united together with the likeness of his death. He's not saying, well, maybe we were, maybe we weren't. This is another first-class condition. He's saying, for if and we were united together in the likeness of his death. That's another way of saying we were baptized into his death. We were identified with his death. And he says, if this is true, and it is, then certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. See, it moves from the death related to what happened at the cross to the new life, which is related to what happens afterward at the resurrection. And then in the next verse, he's going to utilize a, start off with a causal participle, which should be translated not just simply knowing this, but because we know this. So we can implement this walk in the likeness of his resurrection because we know something. We know it to be absolutely true because we know this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin uh, might be uh, done away with, that we should no longer be uh, slaves to him. Now, when we look at this terminology in verse 5, when it says, for we have been united with him, the Greek word that's used here is the one in the left in the sort of reddish box, genomai. It means we have become something. We have become something that we were not before. It is a perfect tense grammatically. Now, that's very important. A lot of people don't spend enough time dealing with the grammar of the Scripture, and so you don't understand the technicalities here because Paul's being very precise like a lawyer. When he says, for you... We have been united with Christ. The use of a perfect tense indicates a com- an action that has been completed in the past. It's not ongoing. It's completed in the past, and we're experiencing today the results of this past completed action. And it was completed in the past. Sometime in the past, a completedness occurred in relation to this u- being united with the likeness of his death. And then on the basis of that completed action, Paul says, certainly we also shall be, and that's the word that's on the right, and that is the future tense of the Greek word a me, which indicates a, a state of existence, not something that 
like Ginomai that just came into existence, but a state of existence, and it's future. And it's stated this way, it's a future tense, but it has an imperatival sense. And so it probably should be translated, we should be uh, united in the likeness of his resurrection because you, that, that uh, uh, or, or be in the likeness of his resurrection, that's related to realizing our new life in him. And that's based on what we know. So that should be translated because the, uh, that should be translated then um, for if and we have been uh, united with him, certainly we should be uh, in, united in the likeness of his resurrection. We should learn how to live out experientially what we have in him. Because we know this, verse 6, that our old man, that is all that we were before Salvation was crucified with him. See, there's that death that took place on the cross. How many times did Christ die on the cross? Once. It's not ongoing. Now, that's going to be important as we go back and we listen to what Jesus said when he says we have to take up your cross daily. So what does all of that mean? We'll get to that after Resurrection Sunday. Our old man was crucified. All that we were, we were crucified with him for the purpose that the body of sin might be done away with. Now, the body of sin is our sin nature. It's not done away with at the instant we're saved, but its power and its is gradually eradicated in our life. The sin nature isn't eradicated, but its, its, its dominion over us is broken, but the realization of that brokenness gradually comes into reality as we apply his word and as we grow. But only as we apply his word and as we grow, it's not inevitable. It depends on our volition. So in Romans 6, 7, Paul says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. The word, the part, uh, he who has died is a participle. It's an aorist participle, technical grammar again, which means that action of dying has to precede the action in time of the, of the main verb. The main verb, though, doesn't mean has been freed. This is one of those great insights you read through the Greek text and you just have an aha moment and go, wow, this is just, I wish I could just sit and think about this for a couple of days. This is so profound because you miss it in the English. The word that's translated there is dikaio. It is not a word that means to be free. That's eleutheria. This is a word that means to be justified. It means to be declared righteous from your sins. It says for the one who has died, that occurs when you're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, has been justified by sin. Perfect tense. It's completed action. He's Again, Paul is talking about what happened at the moment you trusted Christ as Savior. You are identified with Christ in his death. You are declared justified, and there is a complete and total break spiritually with everything you were before you were saved. So this should be translated because the one who has died, that is a position positionally through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, has been and continues to be declared righteous before God. That's your positional reality. Now this is the same kind of thing. What Paul says in five and six, with what he'll say, what he says in Colossians three nine. Don't lie to one another, since you've put off the old man. See, we have to. Because this happened in the past, we put off the old man at the cross. So because that happened, that changes what we're to do. It changes our standards, our ethics, our procedures, our priorities now that we're saved. 
Then Paul builds on that in verse 8. He says, now, if we died with him, and we did, we believe that we shall also live with him. But what does that mean? Verse 9, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. That's the point. Because death no longer has dominion over Christ, Paul then makes this fabulous transition to indicate that sin nature, because we died to that, the sin nature no longer has dominion over us. If it does, it's because you let it, not because you have to. Before you were saved, you didn't have an option, but now you do. And so this is why Paul says in verse 11, likewise also reckon yourselves, I love the old English there, uh, translated, other translations say consider yourselves or count yourselves. It's actually an accounting term, uh, logizomai, which means to think through all the parts, add it up and come to a conclusion, come to a summation. Consider yourselves, this is a mindset, consider yourselves dead or separated from sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So that's a, he draws a conclusion from that. Verse 12, therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. He doesn't give you a command that can't be accomplished. He gives you a command that can be accomplished first because of the break that occurred at salvation, because of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, our identification with Christ in his death, and because second, we're now given the Holy Spirit. In Romans, he doesn't get there till chapter 8. We're now given the Holy Spirit who is the one who enables us to do this. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And then he says, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. That means don't participate in sin. These are present active imperatives, which means this is to characterize all of your life after salvation. Why? Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. See, it's not an indicative. It's not stating a reality. It's stating an imperative. It's saying He's saying, for sin, for you should not let sin have dominion over you is the best translation, because the emphasis is on our decision. Every day we have decisions. Am I going to live in terms of who I am in Christ or who I was before I was saved? And every time we sin, we, whether you consciously realize it or not, you said, I'm going to live like I did before I was saved. I'm going to live like I did when I was uh, a citizen of the world. I'm going to live like I, I did when I was spiritually dead. I'm on, I would per, rather live like a dead person. And if you choose to live like a dead person, you're not going to experience the abundant life. We're only going to experience that life that Jesus promised us if we're going to live it on the basis of the reality that changed at the instant we trusted in Christ. We have to give our sin nature a reality check, and that comes only by realizing these foundational truths that occurred at salvation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be challenged by your word, to recognize that there are realities that are just as true for us, even though they are not experience-based. We don't see it. We don't feel it. We didn't uh, have some uh, inner glow at the point of salvation to tell us that we got uh, uh, were baptized into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But 
It's your word that tells us that this is true and this is real. And because it's true and because it's real, we need to learn to live not as uh, we did before we were saved, as dead uh, sinners in Adam, but we need to learn to live as we are now, as living, new living creatures in Christ who have been given a new life and new capacities, new blessings and the riches in Christ. Now, how do we get that? We get it because we trusted Christ as Savior. We pray that there's anyone here this morning who's never understood that, that this morning they would recognize that, that, that as you are, you can never have hope for eternal life or for a relationship with God because we just don't have it in us. We cannot perform that which God expects. We can only rely on what God has provided for us. We can only accept his provision by trusting in Christ, by believing in him, by realizing Christ did the work and we don't do anything to add to it or to uh, receive it. Or, or to, to, we just accept it. We just believe it. We just trust in him and him alone, and we have eternal life. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.